Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Craig Cervillo, the host of this channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. David Potter about his excellent new book, Disruption, Why Things Change. Dr. Potter, hello, and welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's very nice to be here. Yeah, it's, it's a pleasure to have you this morning. Um, well, Dr. Potter, we always like to begin our episodes by asking the author to tell us a little bit about themselves. Okay. Well, I have been teaching now for quite a number of years at the University of Michigan. Uh, I am a Roman historian, essentially, uh, that, but much of my teaching over the years has had a comparative aspect uh, to it as I teach courses on the history of sport ancient and modern, uh, the history of uh, warfare. I'm generally a historian who's interested in the way systems work, the way people interact uh, with their systems. I've written uh, a book recently on the failure of the Roman Republic, uh, where I look at how a democracy can go wrong. It's, uh, in a way, I think, sort of a companion uh, to the uh, book on disruption that we'll be talking about. Uh, I've also looked uh, quite often at the history of the later Roman Empire. I've uh, written on Constantine. I've written on the Empress Theodora uh, in recent years. So uh, generally, how is it, for instance, in the case of Theodora, uh, that a woman whose father is a bear keeper for a circus faction uh, can become emperor? What is there in the system that enables this, a question that lies behind my book on Constantine. And the reason why Constantine leads off in this book uh, is, again, how can you take some fringe ideas uh, and make them central? Uh, So uh, in a way, the question, the central question uh, of disruption or how things change uh, is one that I've been looking at uh, for a very long time in various ways. So, yeah, you've sort of uh, given away my next question that I was going to ask you. Um, it, clearly, when you read this book, it is, I don't want to use the word a culmination of many years of study, but it's definitely, it, it, it definitely reads as something that you've been thinking about for a long time. Um, so I, I, I was curious about the sort of the origin stories of this book. How, how did you come up with the idea to write it? Um, and we'll talk about the methodology of how you chose the events and, and so forth later. But I, I am sort of curious as to, to where for you the, did this book begin in your mind? And uh, how did we get all the way to it being published in my hand now? Well, I suppose we have a former president to thank for this. Uh, it was after watching the events unfold in Charlottesville in 2017 Uh, and also some events uh, on our own campus in the fall, I began to ask myself, how have we arrived at a situation uh, where we have a president of the United States who is actively undermining the principles of American government? What sort of situation have we gotten into that this can actually happen, that we are so divided Uh, against each other. And so I wanted to look uh, across time at other periods where essentially people had lost faith in the central institutions uh, of their society and what the results of that 
uh, had been. And of course, also looking across the Atlantic at that point, uh, we were uh, really in mid-Brexit uh, then, and there seemed to be a lot of parallels behind the Brexit movement and the situation that brought the former president to power. Uh, looking again uh, onto the continent, uh, we have the rise of uh, Alternative for Deutschland, uh, of Marine Le Pen, uh, a whole series of populist movements which are questioning the principles of uh, liberal democracy uh, as we've known them uh, since the end of the Second World War. And so in, in looking at this question, um, you have come up with your chapters um, and you've picked several events, and we'll talk about some of these events in, in more detail, but can you just give us a brief overview of, of your methodology, of how you chose the specific events, uh, what, what basically what binds them all together? Well, what I was looking for uh, were genuine disruptions. Uh, we often use the word revolution to talk about uh, changes, uh, but what I'm looking at here are changes from which you cannot go back. Um, and therefore, I wanted to use the word disruption to mean a change that was so radical that you could not go back to where you had been uh, before. Uh, and so I was also looking at periods where, frankly, ideas that had emerged very much on the fringe of society uh, had become suddenly central uh, to a political debate and shaping a new way of looking at the world. And so did you find in each of the events that you studied that there were certain commonalities, something like maybe a charismatic leader or maybe some kind of environmental catastrophe or warfare? Or um, is there other things that bind them together? Well, these events? Yes, absolutely. I mean, there is a loss of faith uh, initially, and this can arise from any number of different reasons. Uh, with Constantine, we see a half century of political chaos uh, prior to his becoming emperor. Uh, with the rise of Islam, we have essentially the uh, double knockout delivered uh, by the Persian and Roman emperor empires uh, in the previous uh, 25 years, uh, coming on in the wake of an extraordinary catastrophe with the arrival of the bubonic plague. Uh, when we turn to the Protestant Reformation, uh, we have a variety of different things happening. Uh, we have the rise of new intellectual movements, uh, we have the emergence of a new technology that is really crucial. We couldn't have had the Protestant Reformation, I think, uh, without uh, the printing press and without Martin Luther's understanding of how to use that technology. We have a loss of uh, faith in central institutions, uh, both in the way the Catholic Church is governing itself, uh, but also uh, in central Germany, a pretty fundamental question of what is the Holy Roman Empire, what is the emperor doing for us uh, to protect us from uh, the threat that is emerging in the East, the rise of the Ottoman Empire. 
uh, when we turn to the 19th century, uh, we have a revolutionary movement in this country uh, that is aiming to get rid of large-scale government, what it felt was an oppressive uh, central government in England, and then all of a sudden the forging uh, of a new idea of government drawing on uh, political theories, which while they've been out there for a while, have never been used to structure a government uh, in any kind of uh, real way. And then those same ideas are uh, being used in France, and we have completely different results. And so a question in this case is, well, what is the difference between a disruption that works and moves in a positive direction and one that can end in a total disaster? And we pick that up in our last chapter uh, with the Bolshevik uh, revolution and the rise of Nazism. And we look at two different sets of ideas uh, first of all, uh, the thought of Karl Marx, uh, and then uh, social Darwinism, uh, so-called, uh, the thought of Herbert Spencer, uh, Francis Galton, how that shaped ways of thinking uh, that were ultimately exploited by Hitler, uh, but also I think we can still see around us today. You mentioned early on in the book that these kinds of disruptions usually begin, almost always begin, um, at, the, at the fringe elements of society. Can, can you explain a little bit more, more about that and why you think that is? Well, what we often see, of course, is that the governing ideology of a society is essentially conservative. It is intended to support the system the way it is. And so a radical change or the ideology of a radical change is going to be shaped well outside of the intellectual core of a society. When uh, we look at the rise of Christianity, Christianity is essentially in the Roman world a very countercultural movement. Uh, you are saved because of your faith in God uh, and uh, not uh, favored by the God simply because you're very wealthy, uh, which is a very much a governing principle in the Roman world. Uh, Christianity sets itself up very much in opposition to conventional forms of, uh, of thought. When Constantine decides to become a Christian, it is at a very particular moment in his life uh, where, like most people in antiquity, he's looking for guidance, but he needs to find it from a very different source from his immediate predecessors. So he goes about as far from them as he can possibly get. Uh, the rise of Islam, the same way. I mean, its emergence on the world scene is much more rapid than that of Christianity, of course. Uh, but Muhammad as a prophet bringing a new revelation to Central Arabia is certainly very much of an outsider, an extraordinary charismatic uh, outsider. But he's building a new system of thought in Central Arabia uh, that ultimately is going to be used for the governing ideology of a new state, which has replaced uh, a world system that existed for a thousand years, dominated by Rome uh, and Persia in the Middle East. 
uh, Martin Luther again. Here is an academic in a small university uh, in Germany uh, who is coming forth with his own set of very radical ideas and uh, again uh, absolutely on the fringe of the intellectual society of his own time. Uh, when we look at the development of what are now ideas that are central to ourselves uh, through Hobbes and Locke and Rousseau, again, th these are ideas uh, that were well outside of the mainstream of political society when they were originally published. I mean, Rousseau uh, was uh, being banned all over the place uh, in the middle of the 18th century. Um, and uh, so we again can see people going and turning to um, ideas on the fringes as they're trying to forge a justification uh, for the uh, overthrow of the governmental systems that they're in. Um, and Marx, of course, uh, is famously an outsider, uh, living in exile for most of his life in England, uh, working every day in the in the British Library. Uh, but Lenin himself, before 1917, uh, had been hadn't lived in Russia for more than a decade, uh, and uh, the uh, social Darwinist theory taken over by the Nazis uh, is moved in a very radical. Uh, direction in the wake of Versailles uh, by the emergent movement, and Hitler, of course, who is a complete outsider to German society. Um, you, you deliberately avoid the word revolution. Can you explain to us why? Why don't you think that's a good word, and why doesn't it fit? Well, because we use it for so many different things, uh, and very often uh, for movements which haven't been successful. And what I'm looking at are movements which have, in the end, proved to be profoundly disruptive in a way that you can't go back again uh, to the way you, uh, to the way you were. Uh, any kind of political change uh, these days is one that we tend to refer to. Oh, um, here is uh, the Arab Spring. It's a revolution, except it really isn't going to be a revolution. Um, so uh, what I'm looking at are, are changes which so disrupt a society that a new social and political order uh, has to emerge at the end. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the Arab Spring as sort of, a, of an example of what you're not talking about. Um, because I think um, what struck me looking through your book, reading your book, is that, you know, there, there, there have been lots of revolutions throughout history. Um, you know, 1848 um, comes to mind as well in Europe, like, but not much really, you know, doesn't lead to the lasting change um, that the examples in your book um, give. I mean, you, it's true, we, we definitely can't go back to a former way of thinking at, with after each of these events. Um, let's talk a little bit more maybe about your first chapter now, and we'll, and we'll kind of go through chapter through chapter uh, a little bit. Uh, so, Constantine and, and the rise of the Christian church. Uh, for, for people who are not quite as familiar, sort of give us a brief like overview of, of Constantine's view of Christianity and, and why he, and how he became a Christian. Right. Well, Constantine himself was 
something of an outsider. He was the eldest son of a successful Roman general by the name of Constantius. Uh, Constantius was then made deputy emperor uh, and was told to remarry the daughter of uh, his senior colleague. So Constantine was uh, sent off to become uh, an imperial bureaucrat in the court of uh, Diocletian. And I think in his uh, early 20s, he thought uh, that was pretty much what he was going to be. Uh, then Diocletian uh, abdicated and um, his other senior colleague, Maximian, uh, was forced to abdicate by Diocletian at the same time because Diocletian was trying to bring about a new political order in the Roman Empire after a half century uh, in which uh, there had been political chaos and really a sense that the imperial system as it had been known in the past uh, for the first couple of centuries um, CE was failing. Well, when Constantine's father became, as he now did, the senior emperor, he noticed, of course, that the system of succession had been rigged in favor of uh, his immediate colleague. He and his general staff were very unhappy about this, and he insisted that Constantine uh, be returned to his own court. And Constantius, knowing that he wasn't in very good health, promoted his son, and when Constantius died in July of uh, 306, the general staff made Constantine their emperor. They were not about to subordinate themselves uh, to the authority of Galerius uh, in the East. Now, Galerius uh, had not only been very close to Diocletian, but he was also the great soldier of his era. And what happened in the latter part of 306 is that the son of uh, Maximian, uh, Constantius's senior colleague, also seized power because they just did not like this regime that Galerius had imposed. And when Galerius invaded Italy to reassert his authority, he was defeated. This was a shock to the entire system. Now, uh, we move ahead a few years. Galerius is dead. And keeping in mind that Galerius was an avid persecutor of the Christian church, that Diocletian had in instituted a persecution of the Christian church uh, towards uh, the end of his reign. Uh, Constantine is going to invade Italy. Now, what Constantine knows is you need to have the right God on your side uh, in order to do this. And who is he going to find? Uh, Constantine himself writes in a memorable letter uh, to a council of bishops in 314 that he was searching in his own mind for a way to improve himself, to be a better person. And he found that God who stands in the watchtower of heaven, who showed him how to be the person he wished to be, and he chose to follow that God. This story is very similar to other ones that were being told at the same time, that Constantine had had a special meeting with the divine mind, and this was going to lead him forward and guide him in the invasion of Italy. There's later stories about the conversion of Constantine, crosses in the sky and things like that, uh, were all much later inventions. It was a very personal experience on Constantine's part that he had chosen the God 
who was most antithetic to the regime of Diocletian to be his guide. And he won spectacular victories in his invasion of Italy, which convinced him that he had found the right God. And he goes uh, to his ally now, Licinius, and tells him that uh, the Christian God is really very good news and very, very good at battles. And uh, you should remember to pray to him. And so what we see with Constantine is that he believes that he has a personal relationship with a Christian God who guides him. But Constantine always sort of hedges his bets as well. Um, the invincible son is a God who also very good at battles, who I, he identifies with the Christian God. There are aspects of Christian doctrine that would sort of allow you to do this. Um, when uh, lightning strikes the palace 10 years after his conversion, uh, he still says, call in the Haruspikes, make sure there's nothing wrong here. Uh, and Constantine is in many ways um, a model for the most successful kind of disruptor. He's introduced Christianity from the fringes of the intellectual uh, map of the Roman world to make it absolutely central. But he's not throwing out the old to accommodate the new. He is promoting Christianity very actively without persecuting paganism. Constantine had seen religious persecution up close uh, in the latter years of Diocletian, and he knew that it didn't work. Uh, so that if he is going to be successful in promoting his own religion, he's got to show you why it is good for you without forcing people to give up their own deeply held beliefs. It's got to be a willing change uh, on their part. Uh, and throughout his uh, latter years, we can see that Constantine uh, will happily build churches uh, but only very rarely will he shut down a temple. And if it does so, it's because there's an oracle that he doesn't like uh, or there's uh, temple prostitution uh, going on. There's still plenty of pagans in his senior administration uh, at the time uh, that he dies. But by the time that he dies, he has fundamentally altered the intellectual climate of the Roman Empire. Christianity has been established as central to the discourse of government, central to the intellectual discourse uh, of the Roman world. And uh, there was no going back from that. Hmm. Yeah, I think it, uh, it, it's very interesting that you talk about sort of a, I don't know, a good kind of disruption or how disruption can be done without, as you said, religious persecution or, um, you know, other really terrible things. Um, does that contrast at all with, with the second chapter in, in the rise of Islam? Well, the rise of Islam is actually, I think, quite similar to the rise of Christianity in that you have a, an intellectual movement that emerges very much on the fringe of the wider world of the ancient um, Near East. But what you have is a completely different kind of collapse that enables this. Uh, what we can see is that in the wake of the incredible disruptions of the bubonic plague. Uh, the Roman and Persian empires went to war with each other for 25 years. The Romans ultimately win, but it's essentially uh, a double knockout. The both powers are terribly weakened. And then the Roman emperor Heraclius 
does everything he possibly can do to alienate his reacquired subjects. I mean, the Persians had ruled on most of the Roman Near East for better than 20 years. People who did not subscribe to the form of Christianity that was promoted from Constantinople had been getting along just fine with the Persians. And now Heraclius comes in, uh, imposes his own bishops. Uh, he begins to persecute the Jewish population of the empire. He cuts subsidies to the uh, Arabian tribes on the frontier. He does just, just about everything you could possibly imagine to provoke a new series of crises. And at the same time, the Persian Empire is going through one uh, political crisis after another. It can't reestablish any kind of effective central government. And so it's into this world that the armies of Muhammad step. And there isn't initially any great plan going forward. Uh, what you find is that the armies of Islam are moving into what is increasingly a political vacuum uh, created by the ineptitude of Heraclius and the failure of Persian government, uh, the weakness of these regimes, which don't have anything like the resiliency they would have had in the past. Uh, and you have a complete collapse of the Persian Empire. The Roman Empire withdraws uh, from the Near East. Uh, and all of a sudden, you have the followers of Muhammad trying to figure out what way forward are they going, how are they going to go forward? And there is a period of civil war before Abd al-Malik, who is a clearly brilliant politician, uh, finds a way of employing the faith of Muhammad to create a new governing ideology uh, for the new state. Uh, and in that way, again, he is very similar to Constantine. He doesn't force people to convert. He does, however, provide you advantages uh, if you decide to become a member of the community of believers. Yeah, so he, he incorporates uh, other people through uh, a system of reward, essentially. Exactly. Yep. Um, <clears throat> okay, we'll, we'll jump to the next chapter and, and talk about the Protestant Reformation, because this, this is a little bit different of a disruption than the first two, um, although still religious, um, still religion is involved. But um, the, the conditions are different, the, the outcomes are different. Uh, what, are, what are the most striking things for you about, about the Protestant Reformation? Why is it such an important disruption? Well, it's an extremely important disruption because it enables a reorientation of the states of Western Europe, uh, and it enables a new forms of thought to come forward. Uh, the Catholic Church, of course, uh, in the course of the previous uh, millennium, uh, had become... Uh, very conservative, uh, promoting uh, doctrines uh, that worked very much in its own interests that uh, Constantine himself would certainly never have heard of and would have amazed early Christians, especially the doctrine of purgatory, uh, as a way of shaping the lives of people in the kingdoms of Western, of Western Europe. Uh, you also had a very clunky uh, political institution in the form of the Holy Roman Empire, uh, where power was busily being negotiated uh, between the emperor and his subjects uh, without uh, really 
by the time we turn into the 16th century, uh, being tremendously effective. So what are you getting uh, for your allegiance to the Catholic Church? What are you getting for your allegiance uh, to the Holy Roman Emperor? Uh, and the answer is really not very much, uh, especially as uh, the church is beginning uh, to exploit the doctrine uh, of indulgences. Uh, how do you get your family member out of purgatory, which is really a very unpleasant place to be? Uh, well, if you buy an indulgence, you can uh, you can help your family member um, and is sucking enormous amounts of money out of southern Germany and sending them to Italy. And in fact, before Martin Luther, there had been efforts to prevent uh, this outflow. Uh, there were real needs to keep uh, money in Central Europe uh, with the rise of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, armies moving west, it didn't seem to be stoppable. Uh, and then all of a sudden, uh, you have Martin Luther, uh, who is connected with the court of a sort of moderately important uh, prince in southern Germany, uh, defying the Catholic Church and at the same time defying the authority of the Holy Roman Empire. And at that point, the emperor he is defying, Charles V, is a teenager who has not been to Germany, who doesn't speak German, who is a complete uh, outsider to the system. And so what we can see is a combined intellectual and political movement uh, in central Germany, I think, to shape a new series of, uh, of relationships, a new system uh, of, uh, of power. Uh, and the connection with an alternative form of religious belief uh, makes a great deal of sense because royal power and religious authority have gone absolutely hand in hand uh, for the last thousand years. So if you're going to change something, you're also going to be changing the nature of religious authority. Now, what uh, Luther does of course, is again, he keeps himself somewhat in the center of uh, the intellectual ferment uh, that he has uh, that he has unleashed. There are many Protestant groups inspired by uh, what Luther's done who take things much, much further and are much more radical. But Luther is looking for a way to make sure that you can keep reformed religion aligned with political power. And this will then uh, become absolutely crucial uh, as we move across the uh, English Channel uh, to the Protestant Reformation in England uh, and later to the very different kind of uh, use of the Reformation in the Netherlands. And what we can see is just how fluid uh, this relationship can be depending on how people uh, want to use it and how it works in terms of their own uh, internal political dynamic. Yeah, can you can you give us a little sense of how it worked in England and in the Netherlands that, that makes it different? Yes. Well, famously, of course, uh, Henry VIII was having marital problems. And he, when he could not obtain the annulment of his marriage to Catherine of Aragon, who was, that just was not going to happen because 
which is relative Charles of uh, Charles V, uh, looks to establish royal control over the church. Now there had been some uh, movement in this direction already, uh, as a claim that the uh, uh, king, as as one uh, who derives his authority from God, should have authority over the church, uh, and. Gradually, Henry allows uh, for reformers Thomas Cromwell, uh, of course, uh, being the most uh, the most famous, and Thomas Cranmer, uh, to develop a system of royal control over the church. Henry himself seems to always be quite ambivalent about it. Uh, he's uh, occasionally uh, himself engaging in Catholic uh, or, or rites that would be very Catholic. Uh, because he believes that's going to save his soul, while at the same time allowing a new bureaucracy uh, to come into existence in control uh, of uh, the Church of England with new doctrines that Cramner provides, uh, with a more bureaucratic structure employing people from outside of the nobility uh, that Thomas Cromwell provides. Uh, of course, it's ultimately the hatred of the more traditional aristocracy for Cromwell uh, that will uh, that will bring him down, uh, but still, Cramner and uh, Cromwell had initially been able to negotiate a new alliance between political structures uh, and the church. And after the hiatus under uh, Mary, uh, Elizabeth does the same thing. And Elizabeth is, I think, quite notable for being a centrist in religious terms. She's not going to allow for the most extreme forms of Protestantism to take over. Now, there are going to be um, groups inspired by uh, the thought of Calvin and others uh, who will be much more extreme in their uh, religious beliefs, but Elizabeth is not going to let them dominate. She is going to move very much in the uh, Cramner-Cromwell tradition of creating a new religious political order that is in the center, and she's very successful in doing that. Um, let me ask, in, in, particularly in these first three disruptions, is, is there an element of sort of the leader, Constantine, Elizabeth, um, Muhammad, trying to incorporate the previous political systems into their new one that, that is sort of essential for their success? Because, you know, once we reach the next two, um, particularly when we reach Nazism, I mean, they're tearing an entire system down and not, and I mean, of course, keeping elements of it, parts of it, uh, but they're, they're doing their, 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 their best to sort of reshape the entire society around them. Uh, is there something about the first three and the second two that where that changes, or do you see that in all, all of them? No, I think that this is the really cr a crucial point, I hope, that, um, that comes across, uh, that is that you can have an extremely constructive disruption, one that builds a new social order that isn't based simply on tearing down the old, uh, but allows for the incorporation uh, of previous structures into the into the new order. Now, uh, obviously, uh, if you insisted on uh, remaining uh, loyal to the Pope, you were not uh, going to have a very good time in Elizabethan England. Uh, but there was plenty of space for you to move into that did not require a complete repudiation of your previous beliefs. 
And the same, of course, is true with both uh, Constantine and the rise of Islam. Uh, uh, what we will see uh, with our three of the four uh, disruptions in the next two chapters, it's either my way or the highway. And those are that's an approach that I feel, as we'll see, is thoroughly destructive. Okay, good. Yeah, I, I, yeah, because it's it's definitely. I think that is something that comes through in your book that uh, you you do definitely think and would make the case for that, that there are some disruptions that are good. It's not it's not necessarily a horrible thing or a bad thing. Um, that they, they can be constructive, um, and so that does lead us into our next next two chapters. But we'll we'll start with the uh, the popular sovereignty chapter and talk about both American and, and French independence, and so. Uh, I'll let you sort of go off your last answer there and, and, and tell us why it's a little different. Well, one of the things that becomes very significant and is enabled, of course, by the Protestant Reformation uh, are new ways of looking at and thinking about the way you would organize society. Uh, and we begin to see the incorporation, actually, of a lot of classical political theory uh, into in works which are reimagining or imagining uh, the way that society is organized, right? We have a sort of central doctrine that you know, the king is there because God has made the king uh, powerful. So the idea that there is a social contract that people form a society of their own volition out of the state of nature, giving up some of their rights uh, in order to ob obtain the benefits of a more ordered society is a really, really radical notion. And also the notion that government is responsible to the people who form it uh, is completely at odds with the political theory uh, that had supported uh, royal power in Europe for a very long time. Uh, and, you know, Hobbes and Locke uh, especially um, are people who are very much at the sort of intellectual cutting edge, or again, uh, the fringe of society. Um, the American Revolution, which of course will draw on uh, the thought, especially of Locke or um, even uh, their contemporary Rousseau, to proclaim that a government that has failed its people has broken the social contract uh, and therefore the people are entitled to reshape a government is a very radical uh, is a very radical statement and what we can certainly see in the course of the 1770s is an increasing radicalization of the american uh, political scene until we get uh, the outbreaks um, at Lexington and Concord, but neither side really, I think, you know, fully sees where it is going immediately. That in 1775, the idea that you would be forming a new nation is still not the majority opinion amongst those who are uh, fighting British authority in the in the colonies. It's not. It's only in the next year, in 1776, with the Declaration of Independence. Uh, when suddenly the theory of Tom Paine uh, becomes very widespread as well, that you are suddenly getting this notion that no, a new nation has got to emerge here. But then once you have ended the revolution, 
the question arises, how do you make it work? Um, can you really deal without a central government? This becomes very clear that the Articles of Confederation uh, are not sufficient uh, to create a workable government. There are all kinds of things people uh, want and need to do, but they can't see how to get at them. The government is extremely bad at living up to its own obligations. Uh, it had really cheated its soldiers at the end of the war. Uh, and when we look at who comes together in Philadelphia, uh, a great number of these people, of course, had experience in working together in the Continental Army. And so what we have is an extraordinary mixture of uh, people working with radical political theory to create a central government of exactly the sort they'd uh, gone to war to get away from uh, uh, just un over a decade earlier. Uh, and how do you reshape that government? Uh, but there are people who know how to compromise. Uh, the fact that George Washington there is there um, in the convention is, again, that there's an authority there that can, that these ideas can work around or the people can work around uh, and press for compromise in order to build a new political system. Now, there are, of course, you know, some compromises, very serious compromises, especially the institutionalization of slavery in the, in the Constitution, uh, which are a moment where people simply said, we cannot resolve this issue at this time. Uh, and some people may honestly have believed that slavery would go away of its own accord. And other people certainly believe that uh, whatever else they said, all people were not created equal. Um, that this was going to be an issue that the country was going to have to work out. People originally thought within the framework uh, of the Constitution. That, as we know, of course, was not to be the case. Um, in France, something very, very different happens. The government, the French king, has spent a lot of money supporting the American Revolution as having a budgetary crisis, uh, and he wants to change tax structure, so he's going to uh, call into being the Estates General or political organization nobody's seen in hundreds of years, and he somehow thinks that, that can make things work. Uh, it was a, uh, an extraordinary miscalculation on the part of the French court and on the part of the of French ministers uh, that all of a sudden you can call together a group of people who don't have any experience working together, who basically don't trust each other, and expect them uh, to simply do what you want when they also have very little reason to trust the court. And, of course, the mainstream of a lot of uh, French thought uh, had... Uh, been very much in opposition to the court, that there's a literature that flourishes about the scandals of Louis XV, uh, why is France, France bankrupt? Well, it's because he's paying off his mistresses, uh, that the, uh, the court is a very weak institution in the eyes of the engaged French uh, public. But what then begins to happen that we can see is as uh, the more radical wing of the uh, third estate gains ascendancy uh, politically, uh, also gains ascendancy in the streets of Paris as people 
uh, are looking at creating their own police forces, etc., uh, that the, the government doesn't have a very clear set of priorities that people can uh, can agree on. And the folly of Louis XVI, who's actively plotting against the, the revolution, actually undermines any kind of political center and opens up space uh, for Robespierre and his followers uh, and uh, ultimately... Uh, the execution of Louis, and then the institution of the terror, and effectively uh, the failure of an effort at democracy in France and the emergence of a very different kind of monarchy under Napoleon Bonaparte. Uh, So our question really in that chapter is, why did it work in one case and why did it fail in the other? Mm. And and what would your conclusion in that be? I think it was that the disruptive forces in North America nonetheless had the ability to compromise and knew how to work with each other, Uh, whereas in the French situation, uh, what you have were people who were very attached uh, to their theories of government, but didn't have any real experience in how to make it work, and uh, ultimately saw success in terms of the absolute use of force, the ability to compel people to think the way they wanted them to think. Robespierre is out there proclaiming a new state of virtue, and if you don't want to be part of it, we have a new technology, the guillotine, and that will take care of you. Uh, This idea that you can impose a new authority as opposed to negotiate it is the critical difference between the two. And and so now we'll turn to the the final chapter, the um, sort of Marx, Nazism, Spencer, um, and, and we'll see a totally different kind of disruption. Um, sort of, sort of explain us to us what this is, how it got, we got there, and what was the end result. All right. Well, again, as we talked about earlier on, uh, Marcus is, of course, very much of an outsider. Uh, but the facts of the Industrial Revolution, which are changing the way people uh, live, are also raising very real questions about the order of society and what counts as social justice uh, throughout Western Europe. And of course, there are the rise of various uh, workers and social workers movements, socialist movements um, throughout Western Europe, the rise of unions, um, uh, trade unions uh, throughout the industrialized world. But in Russia, you have a very peculiar situation. You have a monarchy that is increasingly out of touch with the modern world uh, that has undermined itself through a catastrophic defeat in war, in the war with Japan in 1905-1906. And then, after 1914, uh, having gone to war, despite not having the capacity to wage a war in the case of Russia and indeed the Austro-Hungarian Empire at the same time, just a complete lack of understanding of what the consequences of their actions were going to be. And was sending soldiers into battle with inadequate supplies in the Russian case, uh, catastrophic uh, defeats. The Tsarist regime effectively undermined itself and the Tsar Uh, was uh, forced to abdicate by his own general staff uh, in uh, 
February slash March, depending on which calendar you were using, uh, of 1917. But the government that took over at that point was, again, a government which had no broad-based uh, support. The provisional government uh, said that it would summon a national assembly that everybody just kept looking back to France and saying, well, we need a national assembly, we'll write a constitution, uh, etc. But then all of a sudden, you know, Lenin uh, reappears in everybody's midst, uh, having been sent back by the, uh, from Switzerland uh, by the Germans with very, very clear messaging and a very clear sense of direction. Uh, peace, bread, land, end this war. Uh, and he is able to build from the complete fringe of Russian political society a very powerful movement and ultimately uh, to seize power uh, himself. When we turn to Germany, of course, the end of the First World War is in many ways the beginning of Nazism. The persistent myth uh, of how the war ended that had been perpetrated by the general staff, uh, that it had been a stab in the back, the war could have continued. Uh, then the Treaty of Versailles imposing very heavy uh, reparations on Germany and the war guilt clause uh, as well meant that the end of the First World War continued to be a big political factor uh, in Germany throughout the Weimar era. But that wouldn't have brought Hitler to the fore. I mean, Nazism is still very much a fringe party. Uh, Hitler tried his own coup, of course, uh, in Munich, which had ended in total failure. Uh, but uh, there, too, uh, you can sense that the German authorities, which you know, sent him to jail for a year after the beer hole push, uh, allowed him to write a book, and he became sort of a celebrity uh, prisoner for a year before he was let out early. Uh, really, because he was espousing anti-communist theory, he was seen as not as big a threat uh, as the Communist Party. Uh, and he was certainly uh, achieved more support on the right wing of German politics from people who just saw him as mouthing the same basic ideas of anti-communism, anti-Semitism uh, that they themselves uh, shared. The Great Depression is what enabled the Nazis to go from being a fringe party to a central party. And again, miscalculations in the center, a government that is undermining itself, opening the way to an extremist group. And then finally, when Hindenburg makes Hitler chancellor, he does so saying, well, I can control the guys. One of the most remarkably stupid things that a person could believe. But this is uh, was, the, was simply the case in the center of German government that anti-communism uh, was crucial, that Hitler was somebody who they could manipulate in this way. They did not really understand who he was. Uh, how he operated, and what the dangers uh, actually were. Uh, if you were in Germany, in the a German conservative in the 1930s, you were looking to the heir of Lenin, to Joseph Stalin, uh, and to the state that he had built uh, based on his own 
paranoia uh, in Russia. So uh, what you have um, in Germany is, I think, a series of serious miscalculations uh, in the same way as you had had earlier in Russia. Um, well, we're coming up onto an hour, so we'll wrap up discussion uh, with your book um, with a question I always like to ask. If for anybody listening to us today or for anybody who will go out and read the book, um, what are one or two things you would like them to sort of keep with them? When, some things, things that are for you the most significant. I think that the most significant point that emerges from this book is that sometimes the most radical thing that you can do is occupy the center ground, is to create new space in a political system which seems to be flying apart. And this is what our most successful disruptions have been, um, disruptions that have enabled uh, the construction of a new, more positive uh, socioeconomic and political system. Um, and now that this book is done, um, and it's been published, and it's on the shelves for people to buy and read. Um, wh what are you working on now? Well, right now I'm getting back to another form of disruption, I suppose, uh, by looking at the career of Julius Caesar. Uh, and in this case, uh, how do you undermine the Roman democracy uh, and replace it with a monarchy? Uh, I think the career of Caesar is a uh, remarkable story. And thanks to Caesar's writings, uh, we can meet, I think, uh, one of the more remarkable figures uh, in the history of Europe. And that's what I'm hoping to do. Great. Well, it sounds fascinating. And, and hopefully when it's done, uh, no pressure, we can we can have you back uh, to talk about it. Um, Love to well, be I want to thank. <laughs> um, I want to thank Dr. Potter um, for agreeing to come on the show today and talk to us about his book. Um, I know we talked about lots of different things, but uh, and uh, this book covers a lot of ground and there's so many interesting things in it. And I, I would definitely encourage everybody to pick it up and read it. And, and for one more time, I want to read the title. Um, it's by Dr. David Potter. And the title of the book is Disruption, Why Things Change. Um, and again, I want to thank everybody for listening today. And we will see you all next time.